<laughs> Here we are in Luke, and uh, we're talking about hell tonight, so it's appropriate that all hell break loose before we start. No, not, not even close. Um, you know, I don't know how many of you grew up in church, and I don't know um, what the sermons were like when you heard messages that sort of were aimed at being evangelistic, or messages that were aimed to sort of tell uh, you about God and to kind of get you to, to come to God. I grew up in Malaysia, and um, I, we had lots of missionaries Lots of evangelists that came from uh, different parts uh, of the world, Australia a lot of times, sometimes New Zealand, sometimes from the UK, sometimes from America, and uh, uh, it never occurred to me until later in life that I didn't really know much about these people um, other than that they were self-proclaimed evangelists. So, so you can imagine it was when I got older that I realized, okay, some of these people are really amazing men and women, and some of them were sort of not. Um, and, and, and different ones of them would have different ways of presenting the gospel message. And, and for them, uh, the gospel message was essentially uh, this. Look, you've sinned, and so you're on your way to hell. Uh, and by the way, hell is really hot. And hey, but here's good news. Uh, Jesus has died for your sins, and so if you'll say yes to him, you don't have to go to that hot place, but you can go to this other place. And, uh, and there's lots of cool stuff about this other place. There's gold streets, and there's angels and harps and voila, you know, so, uh, but, but if I didn't say it again, hell is hot. And so I, I had the sort of childhood where I, I um, probably responded to altar calls on average once a month. And um, uh, every time someone came and said, okay, look, this is, uh, this is now your chance. Who wants to respond? And I would sort of have this uh, kind of uh, maybe guilt in my heart of thinking, oh no, I was rude to my parents, you know, yesterday or whatever. Of course, I wasn't really, you know. Um, but there was this feeling of, oh, what if I, what if, you know, uh, I don't want to go to that other place and, okay, Jesus. Any of you can relate to, to a childhood like that, okay, where salvation was, was always centered really not so much on Christ, but centered quite a bit on the avoidance of hell. And uh, in fact, when I say the word hell, probably all of you have images that come to mind right away. And probably even without your knowing this, your images of hell have come from, a, a, a lot of them have come from painting stories uh, from the Middle Ages, from the medieval period, have, come, have been shaped, no doubt, by Dante's Inferno, even though probably none of you have read Dante's Inferno. I haven't. But the images of tortured creatures and tormented souls and flames and all this stuff, they, they, they run prominently in our minds because whenever you say the word hell, this is what we've been told to picture. The question um, arises tonight about hell because this text is a text that's often used in preaching about hell. This is a text that's, uh, that shows up a lot in evangelistic preaching. It shows up a lot because there's this chasm, and it, it worked really nicely as a kid because chasms make for good pictorials. And so there would be this hill over here where this is where all the good people are enjoying you know, candy, unlimited candy and chocolate and harp music, and then on this abyss was this fiery thing and it was this huge chasm that no one could ever cross and what are we going to do speaking of cross there's a cross and you know this sort of a thing we, we, we we're familiar with this now when we look at this text we're going to look at it closely because what we have to do is to be honest with the text uh, we're not allowed to make up things about it but in order part of being honest with the text is to see what the text is trying to answer. What is it trying to address? Is this Jesus giving a teaching on the afterlife? Or is this Jesus giving a teaching on something else? 
Furthermore, how would Jesus' first listeners have heard these words? What did they believe about the afterlife? What was kind of in their minds or in their heads when Jesus starts telling the story? How would they have filled in the gaps? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read this text. We're going to say a few things about it. And then we're going to take this long detour as a discussion about the afterlife and hell and heaven and all of that because it's impossible to hear this text and not think about all those questions. And so we'll take this little detour, and then we'll come back to the text, and it'll almost be like you've just gained some 3D glasses, and you're going to put them on, and then we'll read the text, we'll look at the text again and say, all right, so what may Jesus, might Jesus have been saying here? Are you ready? Yes? Hey? Huh? Ready or not? Here we go. Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. By the way, we are teaching through uh, the book of Luke here, and so in case you're, you're new tonight, you're like, gee whiz, you know, visitor here, my first time here, and preacher says we're talking about hell, you know. Uh, we're teaching through the book of Luke, and so here we are. We're trying to be faithful again to the different sections, and this is one that, that, that uh, obviously is a very important issue. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham. This is interesting. Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Maybe our childhood images are not so far off. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Yikes. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will, will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes back to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Perhaps a little foreshadowing there. The first thing to know about this parable is that it's a well-known Egyptian folktale. This is one of the pieces that's often left out when, when people teach this parable because we imagine Jesus is fabricating, he's making this up from scratch. This is a well-known Egyptian folktale that had worked its way into Jewish storytelling. One of the arts of the day was to tell a well-known story and rework it to make a point. So this story is reworked. It's not exactly as you find it. The, 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 old, sort of, the old Egyptian folktale kind of goes like this. There were two guys, a rich guy, a poor guy. And, and then after life, there's this great reversal. And one ends up here and the other ends up there. Okay, we see that. But the big change-up, and we're going to come back to this at the end of the talk, but the big change-up that Jesus gives this story is that normally when the story is told and someone says, well, hey, can you send a messenger from here to there? The answer is usually yes. In fact, 
the, 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 the point, one of the, the main things that you see Jesus tweaking and changing with the stories, he's saying, okay, look, look, let me tell you this story. Yeah, yeah, you've heard this before, but uh, not so fast. Here's where it's different. In any storytelling, when a, story, when a well-known story is sort of told to you, you're supposed to pay more attention to its differences than to its similarities, right? It's, the, it's kind of like that scene in Indiana Jones where the guys come into Indy. You remember this? And he's like doing this whole like karate or martial arts thing. Is whoa, you know? And, and you think, oh my gosh, does Indiana Jones know martial arts? Is he going to like karate fight this guy? And what does he do? Pulls out his gun and shoots him, okay? So there's this divergence from an expected kind of ending. That, sort, that kind of makes the point. So that's the first thing to say about this. In a, the other thing to say about this is that Luke 16 has been a whole chapter about what? Anybody? Last week's sermon? I know you all take copious notes. <laughs> Money. Riches. Jesus has just told, had, had just told an earlier story about riches. Luke is compiling these things together to say, look, this is a story about how the rich use their money or how you use your money. And in last week's message, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus' parable that we talked about last week has this story of Jesus saying, okay, look, there's this, there's this manager who, can use, who figures out a way to use even worldly money for an eternal good. There's a way to leverage something here for eternal good. In this story, we're seeing the reverse. We're seeing a person who has lots of worldly money but refuses to leverage it for eternal benefit. And so what happens in, in, in exchange is that his own eternal destiny is affected by his refusal to spend his money. Rather than being, first of all, Jesus saying, okay, let's talk about hell. Lesson number one, A, hell is hot. No, this is not what he's doing. He's giving a talk here on money. He's, talk, he's challenging the rich about the way they're exploiting the poor and how they're ignoring all the messages of the prophets and of Moses. We'll come back to this in a moment. And yet, and yet, this is a parable that makes us think of the life to come. Unmistakably, Jesus is setting the story in the, sen- in, in the, in the setting of here's life here, Here's life in the hereafter. Here's this age. Here's the age to come. There's this correlation. And so we do have to ask ourselves, all right, so, so what's the afterlife? What, 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 what does the Bible think about the afterlife? That's a question that's not as simple to answer because you see the concept of the afterlife kind of change a little bit from Old Testament to New Testament. Are you ready to kind of see a few things on the screen? We're going to go through a few lists. This will be a little bit more teachy tonight just because we want us to get... Kind of a good, a good backdrop to this, all right? Here we go. In the Old Testament, there's this Hebrew word that's used for the grave, and it's the word sheol. And it's used to talk about the afterlife. It's old, so the heading here would be Old Testament concepts of the afterlife. And sheol, the grave, this is where the body becomes lifeless. The self sort of ends. Uh, you see this in a number of the Psalms, like Psalm 30, Psalm 88, uh, where the psalmist says, God, what good am I to you if I die? I cannot praise you from the grave. In the Hebrew vision of the afterlife, it was really the end. It ends. It's actually S-H-E-O-L, Sheol. Maybe I misspelled it on on my notes. But we're transliterating Hebrew anyway. So, okay, here's here's the English version of it. Um, It's the grave. This is where life kind of comes to an end. Uh, You don't really see in the Old Testament this, this hope for Uh, physical bodily resurrection. There's not a lot of talk of what happens with... It's just sort of... You you get the sense 
from, this, from all the Old Testament verses of the grave and, and, and death, that this is where it ends. This is the end of the road. It's not until you get to the book of Maccabees, which are a true historical accounts, but part of the Apocrypha, part of these books that are um, usually not in most of our Bibles, but we're, in, uh, we're part of the Scriptures, we're part of the stuff that the early church would have read, we're part of the, the books that Jesus would have been familiar with. It's in these remarkable stories of the Maccabees that you start to see the hope of bodily resurrection. In fact, there's this amazing story of this family with, with a number of sons, and, and one by one the torturers are coming to them. These are the Syrians uh, that are coming, coming to sort of make them surrender and submit. And one by one these sons say, no, we're not going to uh, deny Yahweh. We're not going to recant our faith. We're not going to give in. And as, they, as they're standing firm here, the tormentors say to them, the torturers say to them, okay, look, either you do this or we'll begin cutting off fingers. And it's a, it gets a bit graphic. But these guys then, for the first time, it, it begin to articulate something very clear. And they say, look, even if you do this, Yahweh will give us a body again, a resurrected body. This clarifying, clear vision now of, look, the grave is not the end. There will be bodily, physical resurrection starts to surface during this period, 150 years or so before Jesus, okay? We get to the New Testament. What's the New Testament um, vision or concepts of the afterlife, all right? First thing here is you've got this word, Hades. Hades is roughly the New Testament equivalent of Sheol. It's the grave. It's, where, it's the domain of the dead. It's where the dead lie. Prior to Jesus' resurrection, i.e., like in the Gospels here, Hades seems to have some divisions, right? I mean, if we're, you, would, you would think that one of the changes in this story uh, that Jesus is telling is that there's these kind of uh, divisions, and he calls it, this is where Abraham is, this is where the righteous are, but then here's where uh, the other dead are. So that we, we're making a little sketch, and we're kind of guessing here that, okay, it seems to have some sections. After Jesus' resurrection... Hades changes a little bit. After Jesus' resurrection, the, 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 the way the New Testament refers to Hades is it's the place not just of the dead, but of the wicked dead. So you have these verses like in the book of Revelation that says, okay, at the very end, Hades will give up its dead and they will stand before the throne of judgment. Okay, you, you've got this picture here of, okay, so where are, the, where are the ones who've rejected God, the wicked dead now? This place called Hades. Uh, meanwhile, the... Those who are in Christ are with Christ. And, and again, we're, we're sketching here, you know, pulling a, a few verses from here and there, and maybe Revelation. We're trying to see if this makes this little picture for us. And it's, it seems like for those who are in Christ, we're told pretty confidently those who are in Christ are with Christ. And, whether, and, and the vision that we have, the imagery that we have in Revelation is this imagery of throne worship. And so there's this heaven place, and then there's this Hades place. But all of that is after the Gospels, after the resurrection. When Jesus is telling this story, everybody has this, people have this idea that, look, when you died, you go to this one place. It's, it's the domain of the dead. It's Hades. And there's the section for the righteous and the section for the wicked. And you've got to have reservations to get into one side. Just kidding. Now, there is another word that Jesus used. It's not like Jesus doesn't talk about final judgment. He does quite a bit. It's, and whenever he does talk about the sense of ultimate final judgment, the word he uses most often is the word Gehenna. Gehenna is this, is this 
name for this place outside the city walls. It's outside Jerusalem. It's literally the trash dump. It's where they would burn trash and, 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 and stuff would decay and decompose. And it, it's a, there's legends about Gehenna, okay? And so when Jesus says, okay, look, you'll be cast out into the flames and the torment, you know, he, the, the images he's bringing to bear when he says those kinds of words are Gehenna images. In fact, the word Gehenna. Now, it, it's used to refer to future judgment. We know that. Jesus says that. And if we were to say, well, what does Gehenna sound the most like? What, is it, what image is it parallel to? Well, it's most parallel to this lake of fire thing, right? So Revelation two, three times says there is this lake of fire. And Jesus has alluded to it when he says there's a place prepared for Satan and his angels. And then Revelation says, okay, so there's this lake of fire for the beast and for the, you know. And, and, and when you, oh, if you were to overlay them, you would say, all right, well, gee, this kind of sounds quite a bit like this. Gehenna. Image of destruction, decomposition, decay, used to refer to future judgment, parallel image to Revelation's lake of fire. Part of the reason for the confusion about hell is that our English Bibles, for the longest time, guess what they translated Hades as? Hell. Guess what they translated Gehenna as? Hell. What the Hades is going on? I mean, how do you, no wonder we're confused. How are we supposed to know which is which? And are they different? And do we have different images at work here? Yes. And so, and so now, the newer English translations are doing a good job of kind of cleaning it up. The NIV 2011 here version here is saying, okay, look, let's call it Hades. Let's try to avoid some confusion. Okay, what do we know about heaven from the New Testament post-Jesus' resurrection? Well, we know a fair amount. We know that it's a place of rest for the saints. We know that uh, the presence of God surrounds. Again, our, our pictures here come from Revelation 4 and 5. But we also know that it's not the final goal. Now this point right here could, really should be done in like an entire sermon series on its own. And in fact, I did do a sermon series on it at, uh, or a teaching series on it at, at New Life Sunday School that you can, you can download the podcast or whatever. But this whole picture of, well, what is the final goal? I thought, you know, he- heaven is the end. The vision that the New Testament has at the very, very end is new creation. And in new creation, under new creation, what you have is not just um, this idea that we're going to a faraway place, but you have, again, bodily resurrection. So you have 1 Corinthians 15 that says, okay, look, when Jesus returns, then you'll be given these brand new bodies and these bodies that will not decay or corrupt. It's, it's, but, but, they're, but they're physical. In fact, the word there is a body that is driven by the Spirit of God. How amazing is that? And he compares it, Paul contrasts it to this physical body. That word there, psychikos, a body powered by your soul is what you got. In the, future, in the future, you will get a body powered by God's Spirit. That's like the difference between a rowboat and a nuclear submarine. I mean, this is like totally different. But something physical is coming. Resurrection. Our body resurrection is future. And new heaven and new earth is future. You can read about that in Revelation 21. Resurrection is the beginning of new creation. Just a little side note here. Most of the time, because we don't talk about this, most of the time when we tell the Jesus story, we get to Good Friday and we say, this is it, died for our sins. That's true. And then as sort of a bonus, we say, and he rose again, hallelujah. Like, uh, but wait, there's more, you know. Instead of understanding that resurrection is something totally game-changing. It means God broke in 
and began a work of new creation. Something unprecedented has begun, has happened. It's epic. So, with this kind of as our sketch, we say, all right, all right, all right, here we go. These are kind of, what, this is, we went from Old Testament concepts to New Testament concepts to this last one you could call Christian vision, a, a, sort of a Christian New Testament vision of what's coming or the afterlife. Now we come back to this parable and we still have questions that remain about hell and we'll get to that in a moment. But as you read this text, there are a couple things that I want us to see. The first is this, that there will be a future reversal of the human condition. That a future reversal is coming. The Psalms talk about when God comes to judge the earth, the nations rejoice and the earth rejoices. Now, think about this for a minute. I've never had images of God's return or God's judgment as being associated with rejoicing. Have you? I had movies that I watched as a kid that was like, okay, when Jesus returns, watch out, there will be blood. It should have been titled that, you know? Or No Country for Old Men. I don't know, but so there's... But the way the Psalms and the way the prophets and the way the apostles in the early letters talk about this longing for this future reversal, to whom is it good hope, good news, that the judge is coming? Who thinks that's a pretty good deal when the judge is coming? The one who's been the victim of injustice, right? It's bad news for the bully and good news for the bullied. When the principal steps onto the playground, that's bad news for the bully, right? But all the peewee kids rejoice. <laughs> the teacher is here. This is good news. This is how we can all look at this. That what Jesus is saying is, look, in the age to come, there will be a reversal. This is not the end. This is not the way it is. And how many of us feel sometimes we think, okay, here I am, burdened by the sorrow, the suffering, or why did this happen, or why did that happen, and how come I've been dealt this deck of cards, and how come this is how my life is, and it's just so awful. And many of us have stories that we're weighed down by, and we think about a relative or a person that this was their story, and this happened, and this happened, and we think, oh, God. The first thing we see from this story that Jesus is telling is, look, this is not the end. There's going to be a reversal. There's going to be another day. This is not the end of it. This is not the final word. The final word, if you're Lazarus and you see yourself in, in this story, is, you know what, I'm the guy at the gate. I'm the one hoping for things to go right, wishing that things would have turned out differently, wishing that this would have, wouldn't have happened to my kids or that this wouldn't have happened in my marriage or this, and I'm just waiting at the gate for justice. Jesus says, it's coming. Jesus says, there will be a reversal. This is not the end. If you listen to this parable and you enter it and you see yourself as Lazarus, you realize you know what it feels like to be on the other end of the power brokers of the world keeping you down. What does that feel like? What does that feel like to know that there are systems and structures that keep some of us down? What does it feel like to feel like you could never break out of the cycle of this or that? 
And to feel like the ones who are in power don't care that the rich get richer while the poor suffer more. What does it feel like to be the one at the gate? This parable is really good news. There's going to be a reversal. In fact, all throughout Luke's Gospel, this is the message of Jesus that Luke highlights over and over again. In his Beatitudes, blessed are the poor. Not poor in spirit, not the way Luke tells it. Just blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom. Blessed are you who are hungry now, you will be filled. Blessed are you who are weeping now, you will laugh. I wonder what it would mean to really believe that. To not say, hey, thanks, but that's kind of cheap. But to hear from the words of our Savior that says, I see you. I see you sitting at the gate. And I will set this right. That's good news. Secondly, we would say from this parable that there will be a judgment in the age to come based on decisions made in this age. Now we get to that flip side of judgment. <laughs> when you say, the judge is coming, rejoice. There's a part of us that says, woohoo! And now here's the part of us that says, uh-oh. Oh, uh-oh. That there are decisions here that matter. You remember earlier in this chapter of Luke 16, Jesus says, or Luke adds a little commentary, and he says, look, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees because they were rich, and they loved money, and they loved what they had. Do you remember this? We read this last week. And Jesus says, look, what's valuable to you as, as men is actually an abomination to God. And he's saying, look, look, folks, you've got your value system totally off. Amos 5, we heard this in our, in our Old Testament reading, but listen to it again. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain for him, you've built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted peasant vine pleasant vineyards, but you, but you shall not drink their wine, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside, what? The needy at the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, God of hosts, will be with you. And as you have said, hate evil, love good. Establish justice in the gate. What is with the gate? This is the place where you went, hoping that the elders, the people in power, would do something about what's wrong with the world. In our, in our day, it would be like saying, look, I went to court. Or I went to appeal to my boss. Or I went to go this or that. You, you, it, it's a way of appealing to the people in power and saying, come on, help. I'm helpless. And God has instructed His people in this way. Look, when you have the power to set something right, set it right. Don't perpetuate this thing. Now, the problem with the Pharisees one of the problems, at least in this chapter, the context of this chapter, is that they were confident in their identity. Look, we are children of Abraham. We're the ones who do this. Look, and we're fine. And Jesus is saying, fine? Are you? What about those part, the parts of the law that Moses even says to, to care for the poor and the needy? 
What about the parts of the law that you're ignoring? What about what the prophets say about the needy at the gate? I think this may be the reason why Jesus, when he tells this parable, has the rich man calling Abraham father. This is not a person we're not meant to see, perhaps, that this is not a person who's just a total outsider. This is a person who thought they were good, that they were in, that they got it made, that Abraham, you and me, man, were tight. And yet, because you've ignored justice and ignored the needy, Jesus is saying, you sure? You sure you're really on board with this? For us, I know in our minds we're kind of jumping right away and saying, okay, Glenn, but, but come on. I mean, this is not like salvation by works, right? I mean, we're saved by grace through faith. We memorize this verse. We know this. Yes, yes, and yes. But here's the thing. What does it mean to say yes to Jesus? What does it mean to really say yes to Jesus? The way that Jesus, do you know what Jesus preached on more than anything else? At least the way the gospel writers record it. The kingdom of God. God's rule. God's rule. God's rule. God's rule. What Jesus is saying over and over again in Luke's gospel is, look, God is king of the world. More than that, He's expressing that kingship through me. And the question is, do you believe it and do you want to get in on it? Have you ever seen those um, images or pictures of like World War I, World War II, Europe kind of scenes where the army's marching through the city streets? It's really moving scenes, you know, and they're marching through. People are sort of, yeah, yeah, woo, and they're cheering them on. It's kind of like this parade, right? Imagine... That a person sort of says, oh, look at this, whoa, this is kind of cool. And sort of steps in line and joins the thing and starts marching and doing this thing. And all of a sudden they move out of the city and they get on a bus and they're about to go to another town. And the guy says, hey, whoa, whoa, what just happened? Where are all the streamers and the people throwing roses? And the people around him look at it and say, what do you think you joined? You joined a mission. You joined a movement in progress. When you're saying yes to Jesus, you're saying yes to a king who's bringing a kingdom on earth. It's like trying to jump on a moving train and then think about getting, ah, oh, I don't you know, am I, uh, if you're on, it's going to alter the trajectory of your life. What Jesus is saying to these Pharisees is, look, you think you're serving God, but you don't understand that, that God, what God wants is this the kind of yes that says, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. A totally different trajectory. Thank God I'm not the one deciding on what counts as this and that and what a true yes is. I'm not going to sort that out. It's not my mind to do. But one of the unmistakable things we can't avoid from this parable that Jesus is saying there's a time and the time for your yes is now. Which leads us to this third thing here. Start to live now how it will be then. We've talked a lot about this and we say this in a lot of different ways. Jesus never preaches a sermon 
that sounds quite like our evangelism sermons. He never quite comes close to saying, if you died tonight, do you know where you're going? What he says instead is an announcement. And the announcement, in, a, in essence, is this. God is the king of this world. Moreover, he's made me the king of this world. Do you believe it? Do you want to get in on this? Do you want to be part of this? It's a kingdom announcement. It's not a narrow personal salvation announcement. It's a kingdom announcement. That means for all of us who say yes to Jesus, we're not saying yes simply to a ticket. We're saying yes to a king. We're saying yes to a king that has a very clear vision about what it looks like for his kingdom to be expressed on earth, to come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you remember several weeks ago we talked a little bit about living now, how it will be then? Remember we talked about jet lag? Remember this? And how like and you're traveling around the world and you sort of say, okay, look, it's, it's you know, it's like right now, it's 8.30 in the morning in Malaysia. I'll, I'll be going to sleep here in probably five hours. But if I'm starting to live now how it will be then, if I was on my way to Malaysia, I would start to tell myself, okay, wait a minute, no, 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 it's not midnight, it's not midnight, it's not midnight, it's noon, it's noon, it's noon. So what would I do if it was noon? Well, I would, I would be awake, I would eat lunch, I would, you know, whatever. This is the kind of announcement Jesus is making. He's saying, look, this whole age to come thing, it starts now. It starts now. It's already begun. So begin to live now how it will be then. If there is a reversal that's coming, then how do you live now in a way that starts to bring about that reversal? Why is it that New Life cares about the poor and has opened uh, the the Dream Center as a free medical clinic for women who are um, in need? Uninsured, underinsured. Why is it that there are plans for more things like this? Why do we have different local outreaches? Why is there a canned food drive? Why do we care? Because the king has arrived. And yes, it's not fully reversed yet, but he's announced that he's king and he's beginning to rule even now. And to the ones who say yes to him, we are the ones that say, We believe your king. We believe your king. And so, everything must begin to change. That doesn't mean you're perfect overnight. It doesn't mean you're cured of this or that. That doesn't mean you're... Again, if you could take this out of the fear of the fires and see this as a kingdom announcement, then you'll say, well, I, I understand that saying yes to Jesus means I'm saying yes to the King." And the king has a vision of what he's starting to unfold, to bring about, to do. So this isn't a casual yes. We start to live now how it will be then. All of a sudden, a parable that begins in the context of talking about money and riches ends up relating quite significantly to the age to come. Because if you see what's coming, you'll start to live that way 
That's the essence of this. The amazing news is that Jesus is God's yes to the world. Karl Barth, the great Swiss theologian, said it that way. So Jesus is God's way of saying yes to his good creation, yes to his world, yes to humanity, saying yes, yes, I will redeem, yes, I will rescue, yes, I will save, yes, I will restore, yes, yes, yes. And yet, there are some who will insist on saying no, no. C.S. Lewis, in talking about this, said, the ones who enjoy God's presence forever are the ones who've spent their lives saying, thy will be done. And the ones who in the end spend their lives in in the other side of judgment are the ones who've lived, or is God basically saying to them, all right, thy will be done. You can have it. He insisted on it. We could talk a lot more tonight about different visions. What are different evangelical theories about hell? Does it have to be fire? Can it be, you know, annihilationism? We we can talk about all that. And I had it on the outline to do. And I'm happy to talk with you about that after this. But the point is this. There is a reversal coming. There is a judgment that's coming. That's good news. And yet simultaneously... For the ones who resist, it's bad news. And yet, there is this call to begin to live now how it will be then. To begin your yes now. Bow your heads. In Jesus, we have forgiveness. It's what we spent the first half of this service reminding ourselves. If not for Jesus, who could stand? Who could say they're living perfectly now in light of what is to come? None of us. Part of Jesus' coming and his reign, his king kingship, kingdom is that he forgives sinners. How many stories like that have we already read in this gospel? That he forgives, that he calls us to a yes. This is a perfectly good moment to begin your yes to Jesus say, God, yeah, I don't want to resist. I don't want to be confident in my status as like the Pharisee was or confident in my goodness in other ways or confident in this. I, I, I just, I need to repent. I need to turn. I need to change a direction here. I want to say yes to the king. This is a perfectly good night to do that. We'll have folks from our prayer team up front after this to pray with you through that. But probably for all of us, we need to maybe be challenged by saying, all right, I've said yes. Holy Spirit, would you help me live that yes? Would you help me by your grace to live that 
Yeah, it's not going to be perfect. Yeah, there'll be days that we fail in it. But help me to see a bigger picture. I didn't say yes to you just so I could avoid flames. I said yes to you because I want your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. I want it to come in our homes and my workplace and my classrooms. I want to see it come. Holy Spirit, would you give us the strength tonight to say again a a loud, resounding yes to you, yes to your kingship, yes to what you're bringing, yes to justice for the poor, yes to compassion, yes to generosity, yes to freedom. We want to join in the yes that Jesus is. Say it with you. Say it to you. Jesus be king. Jesus be king. Jesus be king. God, we love you. God, we thank you. You didn't leave us. But you came. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Amen. I'm at the back to greet you on your way out. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.